rejoicing from my heart. rejoicing from my heart. For in Him my victory's lifted high. Welcome to St. James. Welcome to the 1030 service. Glad you guys are here. Welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream. We're glad that you're worshiping with us as well and long for the day when we can all worship uh, together in person. Uh, Let me run over some notices real quick. Uh, Today, the big one for today is that there's no youth confirmation. Instead, uh, there's a leadership team meeting right after church. So elders and deacons and deaconesses uh, will meet down in the fellowship hall as soon as church is over and lunch is provided. So uh, be, not, not as soon as church is over, but within, uh, you know, uh, 10 to 15 minutes, I guess. Uh, read, through the, uh, read through the rest of the announcements. Uh, the baby bottle campaign, you'll notice that on the table as you're going out on the, north, uh, on the right side of the narthex as you're leaving. Uh, pick up one of those and uh, bring those back uh, to support the Mosaic Pregnancy Center. I think if, if, uh, one more thing, we're going to start uh, here in a couple weeks
uh, we're going to start um, uh, the C.S. Lewis study uh, Wednesday nights on Zoom, so it's convenient. I, 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 Zoom's horrible, I know, but uh, at least you don't have to drive somewhere. We're going to read through The Great Divorce. And so if you want to be a part of that and you're not in the previous group, I'm just going to send out the invitation email to the old email addresses. If I don't have yours, if you weren't in the last one, and you want to be, send me your email address and um, I'll send you an invite. Also, this week sometime I will send out a link to the edition that I'm going to be using, which is just a cheap paperback edition of The Great Divorce. But uh, it's kind of helpful because we'll refer to page numbers and stuff like that as we're reading. I'll send that out to you as well. Any questions about anything at all, please let me know. Okay, let's stand and uh, I'm going to open us in prayer and then we're going to uh, jump right into the worship. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you know how badly we need you this morning. You know how incapable we are of solving our own problems. And as uh, I reflect upon my week and I realize the damage that I've done to my relationships and the times that I've been lazy and the times I've been filled with greed and the times I've said uh, uh, cruel words to people and the times that I've said nice words to people but I've done it to manipulate them. Like, I just need your forgiveness so much, and I need an advocate. I need someone to represent me before you. And this morning, uh, Father, will you make real to me and to all of us that you are the God who loves us, that you are the God who uh, sent your son here to be our advocate, to, uh, to take on the chance of perishing for us, and in fact, dying for us and rising from the dead for us, to make us right with you, uh, to give us hope for the future, uh, to give us some sort of like, um, plan of kingdom growth and uh, new creation that can give us a destination to look forward to and, and, and fuel for pleasing you and, and wanting to serve you. That, that's what we need this morning, God. We need your presence here. We need you to come and give yourself to us. So we pray that you would do this for your own namesake, for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, we are embarrassed to come before you, for we have rebelled against your wisdom and have gotten into trouble, for we have rejected your fatherly guidance and have gotten lost altogether, and therefore we are embarrassed. To you belongs righteousness, O Lord, and to us confusion of face, O Lord, great God, all holy, Father, most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love. Incline your ear to our troubles. Hear us when we pour out our sorrows before you. Forgive us, not on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy, on the ground of your great mercy in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray, for he is our Savior and the mediator of the covenant of grace. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Let's read Psalm 19 together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The just decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. 
Epistle reading, uh, again, so we, we read the first part of 1 Corinthians 12 last week. We're going to read the next section here uh, today. And Paul's going to start off, and we talked about this before, Paul's going to start off talking about the body, how the human body works, how the different parts of the human body work together to make the body function. And then he's going to transfer over to talk about what that means for us as Christians. And the, his main point here throughout 1 Corinthians 12 is this, is that you, and this is very, very countercultural. This is very, very anti-American Western individualism. You are not a complete human being until you, are on, until you are in Christian community. There is something about each one of us that's horribly lacking. These are holes that you feel sometimes in your life when you're paying attention and not listening to the lies about you can do it on your own. And you just got to believe in yourself. That there's something that's missing. And that thing that's missing is the Christian church. We've been designed for this and created for it. And we find our deepest satisfaction and fulfillment in relationship with others in the name of Jesus. So, for just as the body is one and has many members, he means body parts, and all the body parts of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, no ethnic differences. Slaves are free, no socioeconomic differences. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For Now here, here's extended metaphor here. For the body does not consist of one member, one body part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many body parts, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The eye needs the hand to pick up the stuff the eye sees. The head needs the feet to walk to where the head wants to go. All of our body parts need our other body parts. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. He still means our, our human bodies. But that the members may have the same care for one another. The body parts take care of each other. If one body part suffers, the whole body suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Okay, that's the metaphor. Now he's headed to the reality. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret rhetorical questions? Implied answer, no. He means we need each other because we all can't do all the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand with me for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 4. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus, early on in his ministry, he's going to go to the synagogue in Nazareth. And like uh, any Jewish male who could read, he's being invited to read from the scroll for that day and then comment on it. Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61. And he reads this. 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. In Hebrew, it says, because he has messiahed me to proclaim gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him because now as the reader, it was his job to start the conversation. What does this mean? Who is this Messiah? Who is this anointed one? How will we know when he shows up? What will he look like? That's typically how the conversation would get kicked off. But Jesus says something that no sane Jewish man would say after reading that text, which is this. He began to say to them, verse 21, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, all the miracles there, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the Gentile land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed, but only the Gentile, Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated.
I'm going to read Esther 4 in a second. But first, I have to make another announcement because like, I'm an organizational genius. That's all I can say. Um, we are, uh, we approved at the voters meeting, we, we approved money to hire Dan Herford Architects to work on um, expansion for us, to, to, to designing uh, more space. And, and there's lots of things that we need. We don't, have, uh, we don't have gathering space. We don't have fellowship space. We don't have classroom space. We don't have office space, just to start off. There's other things that probably we should be thinking about as well. All I'm saying, what I'm saying is this, is that um, you will receive, those of you who are members will receive at some point, either today, is that right, Cheryl? Today, you will receive an email with a link to a Google survey asking you, from your perspective as people who worship here, what kind of things do we need? What kind of space do we need here? We want to get your feedback. This is going to be like a big congregational project to think about what do we need and where do we want to go and what's, what, what does God have for us in the future in terms of adding on space. So you'll get that today. Please prayerfully and thoughtfully uh, fill that out and send that back in. And if you're like, we don't need nothing, you can send that in too. We want to hear your thoughts and your voices. And so I'm praying for you guys as you fill that out. And uh, just pray that God, it's a big, like a big decision to like add on space and things like that. So let's pray for each other and pray that God would lead us and prevent us from foolish decisions and those sorts of things and to go out in front of us. And we can all pray about that together, okay? But be looking for that. If you don't get that email, uh, let Cheryl know or let me know and uh, we can get you that. Some of you have, you know, gone through the new members class recently and we don't have necessarily all of your information in our system yet. So if you want that, please let us know and I'll, and I'll get you a link to that um, uh, Google survey. Okay. Uh, Esther 4, let me read this for us. Uh, so last week, Haman has convinced Ahasuerus to wipe out the Jews. Um, the whole city's in an uproar. The Persian Empire is confused. That's the word that's used. Um, Haman and Ahasuerus, though, sit around and drink wine. They're kind of oblivious to what's going on and the damage that they've caused. That's being kind to. Best case scenario, they're oblivious. Worst case scenario, they're just cold-blooded. That brings us to chapter four. When, Mer when, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. There's a little hint. It's not explicit, but there's a little hint in this chapter that Esther has become a little bit of an escapist. Just a little, just a little bit. Like, why is Mordecai in mourning? Let's not ask why. Let's just send him clothes to like, make sure he's not doing it anymore. Later on, she's going to make arguments about her inability to function. It's, it's, not, it's not anything like drastic or anything, but maybe just a little bit used to the lifestyle that she's been leading. Uh, where are we at? Verse 5. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to a tender, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. 
Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepters so that he may live. We actually have in the Persian records, we have this law on record. There's a recording of this law that nobody's allowed to go into the king's presence without being invited. There's also a bunch of boring like red tape that you can go, if you want to meet the king, you can go through this red tape. But Esther's right here like this. is She's not allowed to go in here and visit him. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So, uh, what Esther is saying to Mordecai is like, I can't, like, I'm not in a position to go in there. Mordecai, you know why I'm here. I'm here as a sex object for this man. And it's my job to like come out of the harem and sleep with him when he wants. And it's been 30 days. He's been cho- choosing other women. But my position here in his, is not necessarily, it's not clear that I'm in favor with him right now. Mordecai says this though, verse 12. They, they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's talk for a few minutes about what Esther's gone through. And so spoiler alert, those of you who have not read the story of Esther yet, and if you haven't, you really ought to, because it's a super easy read and it's super fun. There's lots of good stuff in there. Uh, this is going to work out. God's going to deliver the Jews through Esther. She doesn't know that right now. Just pretend in the story that you don't know that right now. But I, I do want to talk for a little bit this morning about w- w- what do we do? N- none of us, I don't believe, it's hard to say, actually. T- to my knowledge, none of us have experienced the trauma that Esther's experienced. To, to be kidnapped from your home and forced to live in the harem of a king who views you as a sex object as a trophy. She's been sexually assaulted. And what I want to do is I want to talk about, like, how does she and Mordecai, like, how do you grapple with that sort of trauma? How do you grapple? Don't don't call it trauma if you don't want to. How do we grapple with the bad things that happen to us? All right. Now, there's three things that, there's lots of things in Esther, but there's three things that we can get uh, from Esther. And the first thing is this, is that uh, repentance is one thing that we can do, is we can repent. All right, now, this is going to be a little bit strange. It's going to sound a little bit foreign. But look at verse 3. In every province, Mordecai hears about this, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so sackcloth and ashes, uh, what's that? It's kind of a weird word. It's not really sackcloth that they lay in. The Jews and other people in the ancient world, as a sign of mourning, when they were mourning, they would... Uh, you know, rip their clothes up and put on clothes made out of uh, 
animal hair, like with the, with the hair on the inside. And they would put ashes on themselves. Why would they do this? I don't know. Like that's, every culture has cultural codes that they use for different things like mourning. Things that we do that, 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 that when we mourn and if somebody 100 years, 200 years, 500 years from now could look back and be like, well, why did they do that? We, they wouldn't be any really good answer except we all do that and we agree that's what you do. And so it sends a signal. And so they're wearing mourning clothes, sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai is in mourning. And, but it's not just mourning. It's not, they aren't just sad about what, it's not just protest about what's happened to them. There's something else going on here too. My, my favorite commentator on the book of Esther is uh, an Old Testament uh, theologian, an Old Testament scholar by the name of Karen Jobes. And she points out that in the book of Esther, there's lots of parallels that you can find in the language between the book of Esther and the prophet Joel of all things. And I, I don't, I'm not going to like run through those parallels now, but I wanted to point out one to you is that the language in, 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 in chapter 4, verse 3 that I just read, you can see that there's three verbs back to back here at the end of this. Uh, the Jews were fasting and weeping and lamenting. Karen Jobes points out that there's only one other place in the Bible where you get those three verbs in that order. And it's in the book of Joel chapter 2 in a very famous, uh, very fa- very famous passage in Joel chapter 2. But what's going on in Joel chapter 2 is not just mourning in generally, but specifically repentance. Let me read to you from, for, uh, from that section in Joel 2. Um, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me. That returning, that's repentance language. So repentance is like a religious word, right? Like you got all kinds of images of like sorrow and grief and mourning. Actually, it's just, it's just the word turn. You're going a certain way. You have a certain goal. You have a certain sort of thing that gives meaning and purpose to your life. To turn and make that, in this case, God. We call that repentance. The word turn and the word repentance is actually just the same exact word. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With And here's our three, and here's our three verbs. With fasting with weeping and with lamenting. Those three verbs that either Esther is borrowing from Joel or Joel's borrowing from Esther to make sense of the other. And rend your hearts and not your garments. So he's not, he's not saying you're not allowed to rip your clothes and put on, sack, put on sackcloth and ashes. But he's saying don't let that just be an outward thing. Like internally grieve over your sin. Internally turn back to God and repent. Return Again, he uses the word, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. All those echoes from, from Exodus 34 where God meets Moses and sees Moses on the mountaintop, which get quoted in the Old Testament all the time. And he relents over disaster. So what's going on in Esther chapter four? This is repentance. Now I'm gonna make a big broad, sta- I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make a big broad statement that if you think about it closely enough, it should offend you. And I'm gonna try to unpack it, okay? The big broad statement is this. Every single instance in our lives Every single instance in our lives, when we do bad things to other people or when bad things are being done by other people to us, every single one of those instances calls for repentance on our part. Every single one of those instances calls for repentance on our part. Do you see what's happening here in in Esther chapter four? Who is sinning in Esther chapter four? Well, it's an easy answer, right? There's a genocidal maniac, Haman, who's convinced to hash us to wipe out the Jews. That's the sin. But what does Mordecai and the rest of the Jews do? They repent. They're not the homicidal maniacs. They're being sinned against, and yet they still repent because not one part of our lives precludes repentance. 
Whether we sin against other people or whether other people are sinning against us, we are called to repent. And now let me tell you why that should be, if you're not paying attention, uh, why that should be uh, uh, scandalous or offensive to you. Because it definitely does smell of self-blame. You know, there's a, there, there are people, self-blame is actually a bad psychological issue. It's a toxic way to live. And you see it, you see it in trauma victims, especially, to be honest with you, especially uh, you see it in victims of, like, victims of childhood sexual assault will frequently struggle with blaming themselves for what's happened to them. And for those people, you just want to say, you, you want them to get the kind of counseling that would help them to see, you did not make this happen. This is not your fault. The sexual assault was done to you. You are the victim. You didn't make this happen. And yet, even in that case, we should repent. We should repent. Now, why should we repent? We should repent because we, as Christians, need to recognize that only God has the ability to fix the solutions to all of our problems, whether they're big trauma problems or whether they're small problems. Every, every one of those problems demands repentance to go and say, God, I can't handle this. I need you to handle that. We call that repentance. Let me give you a couple of uh, points here for maybe some different ways to help us grapple with this sort of tension between not, not wanting to do self-blame in instances where it's not deserved and at the same time engaging in a lifelong pursuit of repentance before the face of God. First of all, we need to distinguish. I'm going to give you two things and then I'm going to give you some examples. First of all, we need to distinguish between specific sins and original sin. Specific sins are the sins that we commit throughout the day. I mouth off to Angela. One of my daughters says, can you help me? And I'm like, oh, I don't have time. And really, I do have time, but I just don't feel like doing it. I'm lazy. I tell lies. I'm greedy. I get upset when things don't go my way. I plan to murder a whole ethnic group of people in the Persian Empire in the 5th century BC. And everything in between. These are all specific sins. And in those specific sins, I am called to repent for those specific sins. You're called to repent for your specific sins. I can't repeat, when, when Angela sins against me, I can't repent for her in that instance. She can't repent for me. She needs to repent before God for her specific sin. But the other way that sin is, the, the other thing we mean by sin in the Bible is original sin. And that is this, Adam and Eve fall. We all fall in them. And the result is, is that the whole world is basically a screwed up place because all of us have contributed to this. Now, some people commit big, bad, dangerous, destructive sins. Other people commit little, bad, dangerous, destructive sins. But in all of those cases, we're all equally guilty, right? I mean, some people, their sin life is basically two plus two equals five. It's wrong. Some people, like Haman, is two plus two equals 416. That's super bad. They're, they're both wrong, though. When original sin, when you think about original sin, the reality is this. The bell tolls for all of us. I am guilty of your impending death. Like my sin has contributed to the fallenness and brokenness of this world. And because of that, I'm not able to say I'm the innocent party here. Now, in some cases, Esther, Mordecai, in the specific sin instance, completely, they're, they're innocent. They're not trying to, to, to murder a whole ethnic group. But in a broad original sin, sin sense, there's none of us that are innocent. And so we are all called upon to repent all the time. Here's another thing that might help us. If you think about repentance, not so much as, like I said before, not so much like, oh, I'm so evil and bad and like, I'm just so miserable. Think of repentance as turning back to the God who can rescue you, right? Bad things happen to us and we think, I just need to get something to drink right now. Or 
some people deal with trauma by like investing themselves in their work or like um, some people deal with the trauma of losing a loved one by putting the weight of these massive expectations on other members of their loved one who they really need to like be there and come through for them because they've lost this other one. So these are all choices that we make, which sometimes are, you know, more or less sinful, do you want to say? Yeah. But, but in each one of those cases, we're turning to something else to fix a problem. And instead, what we need to do is, like Joel 2 says, is turn to God. This is what Mordecai does. Turn to God because God wants to fix your problems. Don't think of repentance as like, oh, I'm just so miserable and I just need to like grovel before God. Yes, we do need to like put ourselves before God and say we're miserable sinners. But the whole point is not to dwell in that misery. The whole point is to dwell in the beauty and the love and the grace, the passion that God has for you. I'm going to quote from uh, John, Joel 2. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because you're filthy, miserable sinners. He could have said that. That would have been true theologically. But that's not the motive he wants them to have. Return to the Lord your God because he is gracious and merciful He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Repentance is about recognizing that we have a God who wants to fix everything and going to him. All right. The alternative. If you don't want to live a life of repentance, you are going to find yourself living in an us versus them world constantly. This is the world that the social media wants you to live in. They are the bad guys, and my side is right. Now, I believe in truth. I believe that in a lot of cases, if somebody says that the sky is green and somebody says that the sky is blue, the person who says that the sky is blue is right, and the person who says that the sky is green is wrong. But what we do as Christians is we say, so they need to repent. And what Mordecai and the rest of the Jews are saying is, Haman is wrong, we're going to repent. That doesn't make any certain sort, that, that, that makes a certain sort of, like nonsense. It seems sort of nonsensical to us, but it's only because we live in a, a Snapchat world where we're all sort of jockeying for like, who's going to be the victim and who's going to be the victimizer? Like who's going to be the oppressed one in this narrative and who's going to be the oppressor? Who's going to be the bad guy and who's going to be the good guy? And what the Bible wants us to see is that we're all bad guys. There is not any sort of position that you can hold that does not require repentance. There's not any sort of like thing that we can do that does not require repentance. There's not any conversation you can have with anybody that does not require repentance. And you'll find yourself, if you don't do that, you'll find yourself living in this false us versus them. And the next step is to say, I don't need repentance, they do. And as soon as you say, I don't need repentance, you are living outside of the pale of the gospel. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying you've forgotten who you are in Jesus Christ. A fallen, broken sinner that needs to repent and turn back to God because he's the one who's gracious and merciful. Let me give you a good example of this. A good example of this is um, uh, Yehiel Denur. Do you guys know that name, Yehiel Denur? He is a Jewish uh, novelist and essayist and kind of a weirdo philosopher. He has kind of some funky ideas. But uh, Yehiel Denur survived a couple of years in Auschwitz. And um, after the war, some of you will remember this, some of you are old enough to remember this, that um, uh, Adolf Eichmann, do you remember him? Uh, one of the leaders, uh, one of the Nazi leaders, was um, he had somehow escaped at the end of the war and was missing for 30 years. And uh, the Jewish secret police finally track him down in Argentina. I think it was Argentina or Brazil. They finally track him down in Argentina. Argentina refuses to extradite him. So they go on this commando mission and they go over to Argentina under stealth 
like park outside his house, and when he's coming home from work, they grab him, they tie him up, they throw him in the car, they rush him to the airport, throw him in a plane before any of the officials can see, and they race out of there and get him over to Israel, and they put him on trial, where he goes on trial, and he's ultimately convicted and executed for crimes against humanity. Yehiel Denur, because he was at Auschwitz for two years, and fairly eloquent guy, was called to testify against Adolf Eichmann at this trial. This is very, very, lots of parallels here between what's going on in the book of Esther and what's going on in uh, 20th century uh, Northern Europe, right? You would be perfectly, it would be perfectly appropriate for us to say that, that Yehiel Denur could look at Adolf Eichmann and say, you, sir, are 100% wrong and I was the victim. And we would say that's absolutely right. But you know what Denur said? So I'm not disagreeing with that. But you know what Denur said? So Denur goes on trial, and if you read what he said in the trial, it's kind of weird. He said, I'm, you know, the world that I know this man in is planet Auschwitz, and it's not the same as the planet Earth. And he kind of is like this whole novelist stuff, and it's not that clear to understand. But he's giving this testimony against Eichmann, and he can't hardly take it, and he eventually, like, sort of cracks up and passes out. And they have to carry him out of the courtroom. And um, later on, he's being interviewed by Mike Wallace, and Mike Wallace is asking him, you know, what happened in there? What, what did, were, like, were you just, were you scared of him? Was like all the fear coming back, or was it like this intense anger at seeing this man who did all these evil things to you? And you heal Denor said this. This is fascinating to me. Denor says this. He says, all at once in that courtroom, I realized that Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann in there, you know, sitting there in the suit there next to his lawyer, this Eichmann was an ordinary man, and I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he is. Super insightful. You know what he's saying? He's not saying Auschwitz wasn't a big deal, bad things happened, and, you know, thankfully good things came out of it. He's not saying that at all. Neither is he saying, well, I'm actually a homicidal maniac too. What he's saying is, is that on an original sin level, I recognize that I have within me the seeds of destruction. I have within me desires that if inflamed the right way, if trained the right way, if put into the right context, could do evil. And I was scared of myself in that moment. That's, that's what's going on in Esther chapter four. When bad things happen to you, it's, you're not saying that the bad things aren't bad things. And you're not saying that, well, I'm just as bad as you. So that's not true. You, you guys aren't as bad as Adolf Eichmann. But what we are saying, though, is on an original sin level, we all need to daily repent. I'll give you another quote from that great philosopher, uh, Bob Gibson, who also had a terrific slider. In a book in 1968, he wrote a biography, uh, an autobiography. He said this line. He said, in a world filled with hate, prejudice, and protest, talking about the, the, the world of uh, racial tension in the late 60s. In a world filled with hate, prejudice, and protest, I find that I too am filled with hate, prejudice, and protest. It's remarkably insightful. He refuses to cave into the us versus them, victim versus victimizer, oppressed versus oppressor mentality, and say, I'm, I'm broken too. I'm broken too. That's the first step. That's what Mordecai does here. So, uh, you know, um, Great quote to end this sort of, this is the, the first section is the longest section too. So, uh, although this was, it was a long sermon in the first service, sorry about that. Um, it's a great, the, the, the first section is a great, great, great place to end with that famous Luther quote, the first of the 95 theses, where he says, when our Lord Jesus tells us to repent, he means that all of the Christian life must be one of repentance. He doesn't mean that, that repentance is a phase that you go through before you become saved. 
He means that every moment of every day as a Christian is one of repentance, of saying, I'm incapable, I'm broken, I'm actually contributing to some extent to the problems around me. God, I need your help in Jesus Christ. All of life must be one of repentance. Second thing, faith. Not just faith in general. Mordecai and Esther need faith, but not just sort of this generic, like George Michael sense of the word faith. And not even like a believe in God sort of sense of the belief that God exists. It's a very, very specific faith that they need here in this moment. And let me point, it's, it's difficult. I'm going to give you three things that, that, that Mordecai and Esther want us to know. It's very, very difficult to keep all of these th- three things in your head. But if you want to be psychologically healthy, this is the only path, I'm going to argue, this is the only path to psychological help. Health is like believing these three things at the same time, all right? And it goes like this. Verse 14, look at that with me. Mordecai told, this verse 13, Go to verse 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than, any, than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's the first thing you need to know. God is in charge and God wins. God is completely in charge. If you do not believe that, you will not have psychological health. That is not, not truly believing not ultimately committing to the reality that God is completely in charge and will win, guaranteed is going to live, lead to anxiety, to, to depression. These, look, so some of you know this, and some of you struggle with this, and I do too, like I struggle with depression as well. Us living in a postmodern, post-Christian culture has led to a crisis, an epidemic of anxiety and depression. Every single person in here knows somebody or is somebody who struggles with anxiety and depression. Now, I'm not saying it's because you don't believe in God, but the fact that we live in a post-God culture, anxiety and depression, it's just in the water that we drink. It's in the air that we breathe. It's hard to escape from that. You must believe that God is completely in charge of all things. Second thing, and who knows whether, you've, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Last line of verse 14. Who knows whether or not you have who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What is Mordecai saying to her? God has put you here for this specific moment. God has put you here for this specific moment. Now, what does he mean? He means two things by that. First of all, he means Mordecai knows. What does he mean by God has put you here? God has put you here. God has, uh, you have come to the kingdom. What does he mean by come to the kingdom? Be explicit. She was taken out of her home, systematically raped because she was beautiful. Put into a harem where it's her job, whenever the king feels like having sex with you, your primary job is to come. Look, he's not having coffee with her. They're not doing the crossword together. She hasn't seen him for 30 days. Why? Because he no doubt has a thousand other women that he wants to sleep with as well. That's her job. And Mordecai says, perhaps you've come to the kingdom because God has planned this. That's crazy. Can you you believe this? Can you believe this? That the bad things that happen to us, that the trauma that's happened to you has, I will fully agree biblically, that it is 100% pure evil from the deepest depths of the brokenness of this world, from the enemy himself. And yet at the same time, God has brought you to this place for a specific purpose. The bad things that happen to us are bad. That's the second thing. But, God uses those bad things in order to accomplish his purposes. So here's the three things 
just in case those of you who are taking notes right now, God's completely in charge. The bad things that happen to you are truly evil. They aren't, well, they're okay because God's doing it. They're truly evil. The third thing though, God being in charge means that the truly evil things are being used by him for his purposes. That's why I told you, I warned you up front to keep all three of those things in your head at the same time. It's brutal, psychologically brutal. And some of you have gone through years, decades of grappling with that and bouncing back and forth between being angry at God or being like, well, all things work together for good. I shouldn't feel bad about all those things. And what I'm telling you this morning from Esther and from other texts I'll show you in just a minute is that God works all things together for good. And what that means ultimately is that evil things are truly depraved and evil. And yet God's goodness and sovereign love for you is so powerful that he can even use those things. He has even used those things to bring you to the place where you can serve and love and worship in the kingdom. Let me give you some examples. Now, I I did the Joseph thing last week from Genesis 50, and I'm not going to go back there and read Genesis 50, but Joseph is such a great example that I got to go there again. Will you forgive me? It's just so, it's so juicy. In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph, who has, uh, his brothers have sold him into slavery. I think we can all agree that that's traumatic. Your brothers sell you into slavery. He's falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. This is horrific. His brothers show up, the very people who have caused the problem, and they don't recognize him. And he is, at the moment, the second most powerful person in the universe. If he snaps his fingers and says, these people, liquidate them, they're gone instantly. Once his brothers know who it is, they know it, and he knows it. And here's what he says to them. Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. Do you see what he's saying? Now, is he saying, so what you did was actually really genuinely good? No. Genesis 50, the quote I gave you last week. At the very end of the story, when they come back to him and say, hey, we're just checking in. You're not going to off us because we sold you into slavery, right? And Joseph says that great line, I'm not going to. I'm not in the place of God. You did it to me for evil. You meant it for evil. Joseph's not whitewashing it. He's not saying, well, it's all okay because it worked out. Actually, I probably ought to thank you guys. He's not doing that at all. What he's saying is, is you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Okay, so philosophically, and if, even if you're not a philosopher, you'll get this. It is an axiom that events have one primary cause. They have, they have one cause. You can trace every cause back to one, every event back to one cause, except for here, except for here. In the sovereignty of God, the bad things that are done by bad people are actually God's in control of those things. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Let me give you the best example I can give you. The most evil event in the history of the universe, the lynching of God himself. Peter's preaching this really fantastic, beautiful sermon in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. And he's talking to people, many of whom might have been responsible in the moment for saying, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And Peter says this. This is in Acts chapter 2. He says this. Jesus, pay attention to this. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What's he saying? Jesus was delivered up and crucified according to who? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why was Jesus crucified? Because that was the plan of God. God planned for Jesus to be crucified sent Jesus to earth, 
put the plan into effect. It was God's plan all along that Jesus would be crucified. Oh, well then, so Judas must have been doing him a favor, right? Have, have, is it, do, do you guys know about the, like, the apocryphal gospels? Like the whole um, uh, Da Vinci Code, which is in this passé, like that's 20 years old. But it's built around that sort of view that like there's this version of Christianity that got suppressed, which you can find in the apocryphal gospels, which the church kind of put down. Well, there's one that's called the Gospel of Judas. They're all, by the way, they're all basically debunked by real historians. But the Gospel of Judas was probably written two to 300 years after Jesus was uh, walking on the earth. And it basically tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion where Judas is the good guy. Judas knows that the only way the world is going to be saved if the Son of God dies. And so he goes out and makes it happen. Right? So is that what Peter's saying? It was God's plan that Jesus was crucified. So you guys are cool. Now here's what he says. Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay. Who caused Jesus to die? The people who crucified him? The Roman government? The Jewish leaders? Or God? And the answer is yes, both, right? And I'm arguing today that you will not be psychologically healthy unless you can live with both of those in your mind at the same time. Else, you are going to be trapped by your trauma. You're going to be trapped by the bad things that have happened to you. And you're going to bounce back and forth between, it's all okay, it's good, just said, you know, said a few prayers and it's all fine, I'm just trusting God. And why would you do this to me, God? I, I, I'm really angry at you. I, have, um, I don't want to be too specific here. I was I actually... One of the arguments for coming to the 8 o'clock service is, is it's not live streamed, and so I can be more specific about my examples. But I have, Angela and I have friends who something horribly traumatic happened to them um, a long time ago. And um, without giving you the details, because again, this is live streamed, I, it was a family thing. And they've all sort of like lived with it for a long time. They're Christians, faithful church attenders. I have not had a conversation with either one of the three of them father, mother, or daughter about God for longer than five minutes where they don't get upset, where they don't get angry. And why is that? It's because they have not come to the place where they can see that the traumatic thing that a bad person did to them 25 years ago is actually underneath the sovereign authority of God, and he is using that to create glory and to bring about his kingdom. It's, it's a horrible... I, I, again, can I, can I just... I know I'm rambling here, but I'm trying to like make sure that nobody misunderstands me. I am not saying that the bad things that happen to you are okay. They aren't. And you should be rightfully and justly angry at those things. And simultaneously say, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the only really true way to be psychologically healthy. To grapple with a broken world and at the same time, have hope in a God who's sovereign and is in control and is determined to win. You can be escapist or you can be a fatalist. Let me argue just real quickly here. I'm just going to do a commercial for uh, a minute about grappling with the problem of evil and bad things happening to you. And again, I, I don't, this is, any illustration I could give you would be in some cases flippant and not really get at the heart of your situation, okay? So, so be gracious to me. Bad things happen to Esther. And she doesn't know why, I'm sure. She, she doesn't, does Joseph know when Joseph is in that cistern and his brothers are laughing? Think about the moment when Joseph is brought out of the cistern and he's like, okay, they're just kind of messing with me for a while. And then they walk him over to this 
people who don't speak the same language he does and say, bye, we don't want to ever see. Think about that moment. Do you think that in that moment, Joseph was like, this is cool. God's got something good planned for me. Probably not. But it is going to happen. It's going to happen, okay? But we don't know how the sufferings that we're going through are going to prepare us for that moment. I was listening to a podcast this week about a guy. He's, I'm not going to tell you the story. It's kind of a cool story. But the, the guy who's the, like the main character in the podcast is a professional fisherman. Lives in the Pacific Northwest. Loves fishing. Says, if I, if I didn't make any money, I could just own my boat. I would still go out and fish. I just love it. When he was growing up, he's, his dad was a fisherman. He absolutely hated it. And the reason why is because he was chronically seasick. And he would tell his dad, I cannot go out. I can't go out. Like, I don't do anything but just vomit. And his dad said, I'll get you a bucket. I just want you to kneel in the cabin and vomit. But you are going to go out. And he realized after several years that he was beginning to vomit less and less. And now he can, like, stand on a rocking ship in the middle of the storm, and it doesn't bother his stomach at all. And he said he went for, for years, he was like, my dad is cruel. Why, why would you do that to somebody? Like, okay, you're going to come out with me, and you're going to vomit all day long, and I'm making you do Why would you do that to somebody? But he realizes now, from the perspective of a grown man who owns his own boat and is completely capable of riding in the middle of the storm and not feeling anything, that his dad was training for this. Now, no, God doesn't ever say to you, he doesn't ever say, hey, look, this bad thing has happened to you, but you're going to become second command in Egypt someday. He's probably not going to say to you that, that with you when the bad things happen. But know that the bad things are his plan for bringing you to a point where you're going to accomplish something great for him. Right? Like you're running up and down the court in basketball practice, and just decontextualize. What do you see, if, if you can see that vision, there's a bad, bad man standing there, screaming at people to run up and down the court, and they're sucking breath, and they're hyperventilating, and you're thinking, like, why is that guy torturing those poor kids? But what you know in the rest of the story is that he's preparing them for this game where they're going to need that level. Now, again, this, if you try to apply these specific examples to your own particular trauma and bad things, it could come across as flippant. All I'm saying is this, is like, buy in. Trust that God has a plan, that this is not meaningless, that there is purpose to it. And the purpose is God's designed to win back the whole creation for himself and learn to have faith in this God who can use the bad things that have happened to you for his own glory and for your good. Okay, last thing and then we'll be done. Think about the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, who are you supposed to be in the book of Esther? Who are you? There are lots of things that we can learn from Esther. That's true. And Mordecai too. But honestly, I am not second in command to the largest empire in the world right now. A lot of what Esther is doing does not specifically apply to me personally. If you think about it in the book of Esther, you know who you and I are? We're like the vast, nameless, but very, very important to God, Jews who are living throughout the kingdom who are in this moment scared for their lives because somebody has decided that in 12 months, I'm going to kill all of you and steal your property. That's who we are. What ability do you have to stop that? And a lot of you know that the trauma that you've experienced, one of the horrors is, is that it happened to you outside of your control and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. You know what we need? We need an advocate. We're not Esther. We need an Esther to go in. Mordecai needs an Esther to go in and say, hey, I'm here representing these people. Make it right. We need somebody who's willing to say, look at verse, uh, verse um, uh, uh, back half of verse 16. Esther says this, I'm going to go to the king 
And though it's against the law, if I perish, I perish. You and I need somebody who says, I can fix this problem and it might cost me my life. If I perish though, I perish. I'm going for it for you guys. I, I might perish. And if I perish, I'm gonna do it so that you guys don't have to perish. This is what we need. We need somebody who will volunteer to die a death that is able to rescue us from trauma. We need somebody who's strong enough and important enough and big enough to go into the throne room of the king and say, I'm here representing these people. Do you love me? We need somebody who's willing to run the risk of the scepter being held out or the blood being shed. What our hearts deeply desire and deeply recreate. So the, the, the whole point of the repentance and the faith points, the, the, my first two points, was that you and I can't rescue ourselves. We need to turn to God and trust in him to do it. The payout of point number three is that God is doing it. He has raised up a Queen Esther, the great Queen Esther, who went into the throne room of God and said, I'm representing my, my brothers and my sisters. I, I will die so that they can live. That's what Jesus does for us. This is the payout of the book of Esther, is that God rescues you by giving up himself. All the trauma in the world, all the trauma that you've ever experienced, all the trauma that you've ever caused, he has put it on the body of his son, Jesus Christ, and he's killed it. It's gone now. It's been paid for. He can't be killed any further. He's all the way dead and then brought back all the way to life. And all there is now is resurrection life. And your trauma is just stepping stones. I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel the pain. I'm not saying whistle in the graveyard and act like it's okay. But what I am saying though is that God has conquered it in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He has made it good. It's still evil, but he's making it good. They meant it to you for evil, but God and Jesus Christ meant it for good. Stand with me and let's pray. Then we'll have communion together. Let's pray. Father, we believe and confess that you are a good God, that you are a sovereign God, that you're completely in control of all things, but that you are a good God. And this morning, Father, release us from the ways that we're bound up by the bad things that we've done and the bad things that have happened to us. Cover those up with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Give us healing and hope in his resurrection. Lord, in your mercy. Father, here at the beginning of uh, Lutheran Schools Week, we pray for all of our Lutheran schools, our grade schools in the area, and our high school. Uh, may it be a place, of course, where uh, there's academic excellence and um, artistic and cultural and athletic excellence. Most of all, Father, we pray that these schools will be places where the kids of our church can come to know you and to learn about you and to grapple with who they are in your son, Jesus Christ, in a place that's safe for questions. Be with our public school families as well. Lord, bless them. Bless our schools. Make, the, make our schools places of righteousness and justice. May the administrators and teachers of our public schools, may they make decisions. May they teach things that are in accord with your Ten Commandments. May they make decisions that tend towards mercy and truth and justice and righteousness. Be with our homeschool families as well. Lord, bless our parents who have taken upon themselves the burden of training their kids in all aspects. Bless our kids and help them to grow up into you. May your name be glorified in, in, in the way our kids are being raised, not just educationally, but in all of life. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank and praise you for uh, the safe travels that you gave our Youth for Life people at the March for Life uh, this past week. And we pray that you would work in the hearts of our culture to love and to value life. Wherever it is, Father, you are a God who creates this miracle of life 
and help us to love it and value it and to make it more important than our own individualism, to make it more important than our own beliefs and the importance of our own personal comfort, our own personal happiness, our own personal decision-making. Father, will you bless and will you give us a heart for the marginalized, for the elderly, for the unborn, for the prisoners, for the sick, for the challenged? God, will you help us see your glory and your beauty in this life that you've created, all of it, that's been designed by you to reflect your glory? And will you give us a heart and a passion for defending life wherever it's at? Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things because you are such a good God and you've pulled us into your throne room and you've called us your children and you've leaned out your golden scepter to your son Jesus and you've accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And now he's our brother and that makes us your daughters and sons. And so we come to you in his name. We pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit and because he is your son and our brother. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Crucified 
may this true body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people, Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Lots of us have been like walking through our lives like ears trying to live without the rest of the body parts. So you're like in a whole room full of spare body parts here. Like find people that you don't know, haven't connected with, or would like to know better. And like start like living in that body of Christ. Go in peace.